We can't. I can. There we go. Awesome. Great. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Um, hey, I'm just curious. How many of you have all your Christmas shopping done? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That makes me feel terrible. How many of you? Okay, this might help. How many of you haven't even started yet? Okay. Now that makes me feel better. That makes me feel better. I I have so much trouble with Christmas shopping. The other the, this week, my wife and I. Uh, we're out at a store, and it was just mass chaos, and I just, I just was getting overwhelmed by all the busyness and the crowd and everybody hustling and bustling, and, and it just, well, I probably shouldn't say the store. Um, well, it starts with an M, and it ends with ACs, and, um, but, uh, but we were in this store, and God, God bless all those workers. Like, I, I know, like, they're overworked and underpaid, but it was just kind of chaos. And I finally felt like I had this item, and I was standing in line to buy it. And the, the cashier helped the person in front of me, and I'm just waiting my turn. And as soon as that person was done, I stepped up to the counter, and the cashier just walked away. Didn't say, I'll be right back, didn't say anything. Just left me there, like they didn't see me. And I stood there for a second and I just got so frustrated. I put my item on the counter and I just sto- silently stormed out. And I realized that Amazon is now my best friend. Um, yes, I'll be just, I'm just all online now. But hey, last weekend, JT kicked off our Advent Christmas series that we're doing, that we've entitled Behold. And behold, the word's not a word we use much anymore, but it simply just means see. See, come and see. Come and see and encounter Jesus. And, and leading up to Christmas, we're going to examine four different stories, really, of people who God invited into his story. Four different journeys, really, to Jesus. Different perspectives of the Christmas story in which different groups of people got to come and behold and see Jesus. And we're all coming to God with different kinds of circumstances, right? We all have different stories, different questions and challenges. No person's story is the same as another person's story, and yet Jesus wants to meet us in our own unique circumstances this Christmas. And I don't know about you, but in my house, we are definitely in full-blown Christmas mode. We have, we have this tradition where um, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, on the way home from church, we always stop by and pick out a Christmas tree. We pick out a cut one, and I take it you know, around the backyard, and I pull it in through the through the house and make a giant mess of needles everywhere. <laughs> we, we put it up and we decorate the tree and, and we get all of our Christmas decorations out and that day is really the, the kickoff day of the Christmas season in the Hudson household. And, um, and one of the things we do, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of you do this as well, we have a little nativity scene that we put out and ours is pretty simple. Um, it's one that my mother-in-law made, it's real beautiful. And there, but we don't put the whole thing out. There's a, what we do is over the four weeks of leading up to Advent is um, if my kids do something really kind or something really nice, what we do is we'll say, hey, you, that was really great that you picked up your brother's markers and helped him out. You can go put a piece of hay in the manger. And then over the four weeks, they just keep adding hay, more and more hay to the manger. And then on Christmas Eve, there's all this hay to keep baby Jesus warm and we fight over who gets to put baby Jesus in, you know. But, um, but it's a pretty simple one. But, I, but, you know, some nativity scenes are more elaborate. Some are more elaborate. Sometimes you have a nativity scene where there's Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, and then there's a whole bunch of other people and animals kind of hanging around who've come to see and behold Jesus. And one of those groups of people is the people that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a group of people called the Magi. 
often called the wise men. And I find, I find the, the Magi, the wise men, to be an interesting group of people that I thought I knew a lot about. But as I began to study the story in the Bible more and, and examine it and learn, I realized that a lot of what I'd come to believe about the Magi or the wise men was more from tradition and even legend than actually in the Bible. This week, as I, I asked people, different people, I was going around all week asking people, hey, what, when you think of the Magi, when you think of the wise men, what do you think of? Like, what comes to mind? And somebody said, oh, I think of the, I think of the first thing I think of is that the old Christmas hymn, you know, about the kings, you know. We three kings of Orient are blah, blah, blah. I don't remember the rest of the words, right? So, so I guess they're kings and they're from the Orient, which means like the East. So I don't, I don't know, like, is that China? Is that India? Where, where, how far East are we talking? And somebody else talked about how they said, I, I guess I just think of these, you know, old, old rich guys, you know, like in funny hats and funny clothes and, and they, they've come, but they're all different, you know, different races and different ethnicities and somehow they've joined together. But I'm not really sure. Some people talked about how I know that they brought gifts for baby Jesus, like, like these, in these weird looking jars. That's what I always picture, and, you know, and one of them had gold inside and one of them had some doTERRA essential oils. I don't remember, like frankincense and myrrh or something like that. And then one person said, I always, I always just, the Magi honestly always kind of creeped me out. Like I just always, they always seem like they're just have these creepy eyes staring over Mary's shoulder looking at baby Jesus. Like who are these strangers? I don't know who you are. And what I discovered is that what we've, much of what we've come to believe about the Magi, like I said, from nativity scenes or Christmas carols, that a lot of it we, isn't in the Bible. It's not there. Or a lot of it's speculation. And some of it honestly might just be inaccurate, that we, we, just, we just kind of filled in the gaps. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is the only one of the four Gospels that includes the story of the Magi visiting Jesus. And we're going to look at that story today and kind of see what we, what we see in that actual story. So it's in Matthew chapter 2, starting off in verse 1 through verse 12. So we're going to read that here. You can follow along on the screens or you can open your Bibles if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides over here and back by the sound booth. Or if you have a phone app, Bible phone app, you can open to that too. So it starts off like this. Verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, which some translations here will say wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where, where, sorry, I lost my spot there. Where is it? Somebody, t- where am I at here? Where the Messiah was to be born, right? Is that what it is? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there it is. I can read now. Let me pull this closer. I'm so tall. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And here they quote the, the priests and, and teachers of the law, they quote Micah 5 too. It says this, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. 
And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So, so these wise men did follow a guiding star, and they did give gifts to Jesus, but what's interesting in this story is nowhere in the story does it say that there were specifically three magi. In fact, in Eastern Christianity, oftentimes they assume there are 12 wise men in their tradition. And nor does Matthew identify them as kings or exactly where they come from. It says the east, but like we said, east is a direction, not a destination. So from this text, we don't know exactly what place that is. And nor do we know their race or their ethnicity or really their culture from this text. It doesn't even say that Jesus was a baby in a manger. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that Jesus may have been around two years old at this point in the story from something that King Herod says later on in chapter two, how um, he talks about the children under two, two and under, that we'll get to later. And I, and I realize that for some of us, this is like, this is, might make us a little upset. Like, wait a minute, this isn't what I was told. And there might be this urge to go home and smash your wise men, right? Well, don't do that, don't do that. See, what, over time, we've done what most people do when we don't know all the details, right? We filled in the gaps. We filled in the gaps. We don't have all the information, so we filled in the gaps with what seems logical, what seems to make sense. There, there were three gifts, so it's rude to show up to a party or visiting somebody without a gift, so there must have been three people, and each one of them gave one gift. But we don't know that exactly from the story. We've taken what artist interpretations have done in art and in music and in paintings and and those things have kind of become ingrained in our minds as well that must be exactly how it was but here's what I realized that most people don't know most people don't know that while this is the only time in the New Testament the wise men are mentioned it's not the only time in the Bible the wise men are mentioned in fact in the Old Testament there's a very clear section in the book of Daniel that talks about the wise men. And this will take a little bit of a history lesson to kind of explain a little bit here, but hundreds of years prior to Jesus' birth, the Babylonian people had become kind of the world power. And they came into Israel and they conquered Israel and they took all the Jewish people and exiled them off to Babylon. And one of those guys was a man named Daniel. And Daniel was taken off to Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq today. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, in chapter two, it tells this story about how the king of Babylon, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, was having terrible dreams. It was, it was troubling him. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't stay asleep. He would have a dream and wake up and then have insomnia. And so he goes, it says in Daniel two, it says he goes and he calls together all of his wise men together, all of his magicians or magi, all of his sorcerers, all of his um, Um, all of these different people, his astrologers. And he calls them all together and he tells them, he says, I have this dream and I don't know what it means and it's really bothering me. I need you to interpret the dream. 
And they say, okay, we can do that. You just tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not falling for that. If I tell you the dream, you're just going to tell me what you think I want to hear. You're just going to try to appease me and please me. He says, so if you're really wise men, you'll not only tell me the interpretation of the dream, but you'll also tell me what the exact dream that I had was without any details, without me telling you anything. And they look at him like, you're crazy. Nobody can do that. Nobody can do that. And so he says, fine then, if you can't do that, then I'm going to end your life. He's a little more graphic than that. Talks about ripping them limb from limb, destroying their houses. And so he puts them all in prison, awaiting their death. And somebody speaks up and says, there is one guy who can do this. There's There's a Jewish guy named Daniel. And so Daniel prays to God and God, in fact, not tell, God does tell him the dream and the interpretation from the, of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar is blown away. He's blown away that this actually, that, that there's a God who can actually, this guy can actually hear from God. And so Nebuchadnezzar rewards Daniel and you know what he does? He puts Daniel in charge of all the wise men, all these different religious leaders in the Babylonian empire. Daniel raises to the top of being their leader, of basically these foreign religions. And think about that. Think about the influence he had. And these men looked at him like, wow, you, can, you like actually can hear, like interpret dreams and hear dreams. Teach us what you know. Teach us about your religion. Teach us about your beliefs. And Daniel was in this, this situation where he could, he could have influence and teach all these, these foreigners about the Jewish customs. And it's likely that he taught them about um, the Jewish traditions and teachings, and especially likely he taught them about the idea of, this, of, of a messianic figure, of a future king who would come and save the Jewish people. And that's probably, that's probably why these foreign magi, guys 600 later, even knew to look for a star and even knew to come to Jerusalem from what they had learned and would have been passed down to them over time. And as the Babylonian Empire crumbled in history, the Medo-Persian Empire kind of rose to power. The Jews were eventually allowed to come back home. They were allowed to return home. And the Magi, who stayed in the area, they became heavily involved in what was known as Zoroastrianism. It's a religion that still exists today, and it highly involves astrology, studying the stars. Studying the stars, believing that the heavens can tell us about things on earth. But what's interesting is there's also some similarities to Judaism. There's a lot of similarities. It's not Judaism, don't hear me that, it's not Christianity. But there's a lot of similarities. For example, um, they believe in a monotheistic God. They believe in one God. When, When most cultures back then were polytheistic and believed in many gods, they believed in one God. And they believed in this one God as being the creator of the whole universe. That's very Jewish in thinking. And they thought of this God as a, like a father. Like a father, just like the Jews did. They believed in a heaven and a hell. They believed in an end times messianic figure who would come. They had a sacrificial system similar to the Jewish system. They had an order of priesthood that got passed down from fathers to sons, just like the Levites did in Judaism. And I just wonder, I just wonder how much influence Daniel had during his time as a leader of these wise men. It seems like a lot. 
It seems like a lot. And by the time of Jesus, 600 years later, the Magi, the descendants of these original wise men, had not, only risen to had not only risen to have religious influence, but also political influence. We know from history that these men were known as the king makers. King makers. They, would, they weren't kings themselves, but they studied the stars and the heavens and they watched for signs who would be crowned the next king in different cultures and then they would go and announce it. So this gave them huge political influence. It gave them fame, it gave them wealth, it gave them power. And they show up from the east, probably, probably from this modern, you know, modern day Iraq, Iran. We don't know for sure, but, but probably not as far as China or India. And they, they probably did travel for months. They show up in Jerusalem and they come up on King Herod's doorstep and they basically say, where's the new king? We've come to worship him. We've been watching the movement of the stars and we know that he's been born and this, it's also likely, it's also likely because of their prominence and their fame and their culture that they weren't just three lonely travelers on camels. That probably they traveled with a whole entourage of servants and uh, animals and tents. You know, it says in the passage that we read that not only was Herod disturbed by their presence, but all of Jerusalem was disturbed by their presence. And I don't, a big city like Jerusalem, and this is just me wondering, but I just don't feel like it's very likely that a huge city would notice three travelers coming in. But I'm sure they would notice a giant entourage of people coming in. Even though, even though these, these uh, magi had some clear knowledge of Jewish customs, it was mixed with other beliefs, astrology and magic. These weren't men who were born in Israel going to synagogue every Sabbath. These weren't Christian kids who spent their weekends learning Bible studies. These people were outsiders. They came from a different way of seeing the world, but they were looking for God. They were willing to travel for months and brought valuable gifts to worship this foreign king. Their eyes were always up in the heavens looking for signs that he might be born. And when they saw the star, they set aside their plans and they went looking for Jesus and they worshiped him. And because they had faith and because they took a step of faith and they were willing to leave their home and go on a journey, they got to see and behold Jesus. They got to see him. They were actively searching for God. For those of you who are my age or older, do you remember what it was like before the days of the internet when you went to look, we had to look something up and you had to go to the library and you had to use this really mystical, magical thing called the card catalog. You remember that? And then you had to understand and know how to read the secret code called the Dewey Decimal System, <laughs> right? And then once you figured out where the book was that you thought it might be helpful, you had to actually go to the aisle and the row and find the book. And then you actually had to read the whole book. Like it didn't just like wasn't right there. And maybe if you were lucky, you could find like one paragraph that was helpful. But if you were willing to put in the effort and the time and the energy, you could find what you were looking for. You could find it. These magi, that's what these magi did. That's what these magi were willing to do. I believe there's a little bit of the magi in all of us. I think there is a need in all human beings, in all of us, that is seeking and searching and wants to behold and see Jesus. To come and know him, but then to continue to know him in an ever-growing relationship. And I don't, I, I don't believe that everybody always recognizes this spiritual need. I think that's obvious. 
Sometimes I think we hide that need, cover up that need with other things, or we, we rationalize it out of our scientific thinking brains. Or sometimes I think we forget. We forget that we need to continue to keep searching for God, to continue to keep pursuing him. Sometimes we give up too easy. We give up too quick. If he doesn't meet, if we don't meet God instantly in the way that we need him to, every time we need him to, we can quickly give up. And yet these magi, these wise men traveled for months. They, they didn't give up. They didn't even give up when they came to Jerusalem and found out he wasn't there. They would have to go to another town, to Bethlehem. They continued on their journey, but they got to see him. They got to see him. But I also think there's a large part of us that resists this idea that there's a little bit of the Magi in all of us, yes, but there's also a little bit of King Herod in us that resists the idea of Jesus becoming king and being in control. Herod, from history we know, was a pretty brutal guy. He was a tyrannical ruler. Um, He manipulated in his way and schemed his way to gain the right to rule Judah uh, over the or Judea over the Roman Empire, under the Roman Empire's thumb. He wasn't even a true king by bloodline. He wasn't even a born Jew. He became Jewish. He was an Edomite. He was an an outsider originally. He married and then later executed one of his wives to help posture himself to first gain control and then to keep control as king of the Jews. And now these wise men show up on Herod's front porch, and they basically say, we know, you're the, we know you're the puppet king. We've come to worship the real king. The real king. We've come to worship him, not you. And later on in the Gospel of Matthew, just in the next section, we find out that Herod says that he actually had no plans to go worship Jesus. He wanted to know where Jesus was so he could kill him. And when the when the, um, the wise men are warned in a dream not to go back to him, they go home a different way. Herod finds out they never showed back up. He's upset and he orders basically a genocide of all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. And Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus have to flee to Egypt for a number of years to get away. Herod is willing to go to extreme circumstances to avoid giving up control. Because giving up control implies in his mind that he would lose his throne. That he, and he's willing to stop nothing to maintain the status quo. He wants to keep and stay in power. His reason, his reason for looking for Jesus was the opposite of the Magi's reason. He didn't want to submit and worship Jesus. He was so concerned about losing his political power, but what he didn't realize is that he wasn't asking enough questions. All he asked was where is the Messiah to be born? If he would have continued to ask more questions, questions like, who is this Messiah supposed to be? What kind of a king is this guy supposed to be? What he would have learned and discovered in the scriptures is that this kind of a king was so different than the kind of king that he was. He would have learned that Christ Christ was not just coming to rule over the Jews, but was gonna bring a bigger kingdom, the kingdom of heaven to earth. And it was going to change everything. But Herod, Herod couldn't see this. He couldn't get past his, the way he saw his world. He couldn't get past his Roman-appointed kingship. He was so afraid of something being different and new, he was willing to go to extreme things to keep it the same, to, stay, to try to stay in control of his little piece of the world. 
And I think, in an odd way, we can be a little bit like Herod too, maybe not to this extreme case. But I think oftentimes, I know I get used to the idea of thinking that I'm the king of my own life. That I'm in charge. That I want to be in control of my own destiny. That I don't want to give up the throne. I want things to stay the way they are. I want to feel like I have the power in my life. Instead of Herod being excited about the Magi showing up and saying, yeah, yeah, let's go together. Let's go, show me the way. Yeah, that'll be hard for me, but I know in the end that that's what's best for me. I know in the end that giving that control over will, will, will be way better in the end and be better for the people I'm supposed to be watching over and, and leading. So the question is, is this, is where are you and I, where are you and I trying so desperately to hold on to control in our lives? Where are we, where are we, where are we gripping with a death grip to try to maintain control? Maybe God is inviting us to, to let him be the king over our lives a little bit more today. Maybe there's an area in our life that, that we need to set aside our way of doing things and take a step of faith and trust that, that he'll do a much better job in charge. Not only that, I believe that there are specific people, I believe there are specific people who are like the magi to us in our lives right now. That there are people in our lives who are searching for God who have questions about God. People who have questions about God or faith or Christianity, maybe they would would check the box and say, I'm a Christian, but it's more of a cultural thing than an active relationship with God. And God wants to use us like he used Herod, even though Herod didn't have the best intentions, God still used Herod, to point people to where Jesus can be found. We don't have to know all the answers. Herod didn't know very many answers. But we can say, I know where you can find Jesus. This is what I know. Let me tell you what I know and point them in that direction. We like to be comfortable. We like to, the people around us to make us comfortable. King Herod had this entourage of foreigners from the east show up onto his little piece of the pie in the Roman Empire and he does not like it. They are threatening his way of doing things. But he's lost sight. He's lost sight. He's taken his eyes off the bigger picture of what God has announced to the prophets would happen, that the coming of Christ would change everything. It would change everything. And I find it interesting that Matthew, who was the only one of the four gospel writers to include this story, like I said, that he was specifically writing to Jewish Christians in mind. That was his audience in his mind. And all throughout his gospel, he includes stories of non-Jewish people coming and meeting Jesus. A Roman centurion, a Canaanite woman, different stories of people who are outside the Jewish faith coming and encountering God. And I believe he's trying, one of his themes in his, in his gospel is he's trying to get the Jewish Christian audience to realize that Jesus didn't just come to rescue them. He came to rescue everyone to include those who have been on the outside and, and welcome them in. You know, the main teaching of the New Testament can be summed up like this. It can be summed up like this. Behold, behold, see. See the good news about Jesus and then be saved by the good news of Jesus and then go share the good news of Jesus. 
When we see Jesus and are saved by faith in him, our natural response should be to share him with others. There are magi in each of our lives, people searching for God, looking for God. People in our offices, in our neighborhoods, in our families. And I, and I, I myself am asking myself this question, what am I doing and how, how am I doing at pointing them toward finding Jesus? I want to give you a challenge this week that I did and I, what it is, I took a piece of paper and I just drew a line down the middle making two columns. And uh, on the left side, I thought of all the people that I have like invested relationship with in, like people that I really know well, that I spend more time than just saying hi to. And on the left side, I wrote down all the names of the people in my life, family, friends, you know, neighbors, who I would say have an active relationship with God that I feel I, I know from talking with them and knowing them that on the left side, I write down all the names of the people that I know. They, they, they're really pursuing a relationship with God. And on the right side, I wrote down people who might be possible magi in my life. People who maybe are searching for God or have questions about God or I just don't even know where they fall. And if you're a newer Christian and you do this, you might have a lot of people on the right side. A lot of your family and friends might not have an active relationship with God. But if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, or most of your families are as Christians, your left side might be really long. I'll be honest, my left side was like, more, took more than one page. But my right side was extremely slim. My right, it was a really humbling thing for me to think about. Who am I investing in? Who am I taking my time to spend with to give opportunity for them to ask questions? about God, about faith, about the meaning of life. You know, maybe, maybe it's an opportunity this week, you know, this month to, to grab coffee with somebody, to invite somebody over for dinner, to invite them to Christmas Eve service. You know, I wonder if just God, God I wonder if God might just use us like he used Daniel and then later used Herod to point the Magi toward knowing and meeting the king. That he might use us and some people on the right side of our list to do the same. You know, our nation is becoming what sociologists call a post-Christian nation. A post-Christian nation, meaning like that not everybody in our culture has a Christian paradigm of seeing the world. That that is not the majority anymore. That I was talking to a pastor at the Dayton Vineyard a couple weeks ago and he was telling me, we were talking about this concept, and he said, you know, I just talked to a guy, a gentleman, uh, an adult man, and I, we were talking about faith, and he, he's a new, newer Christian, and somehow the story of Jonah and the big fish came up, and he had never heard the story of Jonah and the big fish, ever. And you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, pretty much everybody heard that story. Even if you weren't a Christian, you would know that story just from literature and culture. That was something that you would hear, but nowadays that's not true. It's not true. More and more people have never heard the good news about Jesus. Or maybe they've heard pieces of it, but nobody's ever helped them kind of put the puzzle together. The church needs to be a place where we can have people who can come from different ways of seeing the world and come and see Jesus. Come and ask questions. Come and explore Christianity. People from different religious backgrounds. People who have agnostic or atheist beliefs. Coming and checking out Jesus. 
Sometimes I think we worry that if we invite a person like this to church that they won't want to come because it'll just be too foreign to them. It'll be too foreign to them. The worship songs will be weird or the speaker will be talking and they won't know what's going on and it'll just be too uncomfortable. It'll be too uncomfortable. And you guys know this, I'm sure, but, but we live in an area of the country that is one of the fastest growing areas. Like Delaware County is like one of the fastest growing counties in the country. We're new neighbors, people moving in all the time. And I, and I, I really believe that I think I, I speak for the whole leadership here at VCDC when I say this. But, but I don't just want to see our church grow because our church's gain is another church's loss. That as people move from another community that, that they leave their church and they come to our church and that's all the kind of growth that we have. Now that's, like if, you're, if that's you, like we're glad you're here. Don't hear me wrong. Like we, we, I recognize that that's a part of, of it. That we want to be a, a place where people can continue to journey with Jesus and grow in their relationship. And if, if you're new to the area, we're glad you're here. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, we're glad you're here. But I, but even more than that, like I want to see hundreds of people come to know Jesus in this place. And in, 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 in relationship with you all. As they rub shoulders with you, as they work with you, as they na- become neighbors with you. That they encounter the living king. I mentioned this before, but I grew up in this house that was like a 100-year-old farmhouse, and my folks still live there, and it's, it's got this huge front porch, this huge wraparound front porch on two sides of the house, and it's deep, and we, whenever we go there and I, um, we go and visit and stuff, um, on the warm spring days or summer days, they have a whole dining like, table, outdoor dining table on their porch, and we'll sit and eat dinner on the front porch together. And as people, it's, they live in the country, so everybody kind of knows everybody. But as people walk by, they say hi. You know, people come on the porch and talk to my folks. And I was thinking about that. We don't really build houses like that anymore, do we? With big front porches. I mean, some people have front porches, but they're smaller typically, and they're usually more for aesthetic purposes. I love, I love, I think it's so cool that our church is known in this community for its actual front porch. When I tell people that I'm a pastor at the Vineyard, and they look at me and they think, Oh yeah, I know that church. That's that church with that big front porch and all the rocking chairs that I thought was the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> I pulled in for a meal and was disappointed. <laughs> you know, but I, I believe that every church needs a front porch. Not a literal one, but a metaphorical front porch where there's a space for people from the outside the church body who don't have relationship with God, who aren't active churchgoers, that they can come and explore and ask questions about God. You know, when you get invited into somebody's house for the first time, it can be, it can be nerve-wracking a little bit, can it? it Cause a little of anxiety in some of us. It's the same way being invited to a church for the first time. It can be intimidating and make people nervous, but, but chatting on the front porch with somebody, that's not so threatening. That's not, that's not so much of a commitment there. So where do we invite and send people who have questions about God but don't want to be preached at like I'm doing right now? You know, a safe space where people can chat on the metaphorical front porch for a while before they come into your home, where they can belong before they feel like they have to believe. One of the things we talked about briefly in the announcements is that we're starting at the beginning of this year something called Alpha. And Alpha, if you're not familiar with it, it's meant to be just one of the ways that people can have a front porch experience in our church. 
Alpha, it's for anybody, but it's specifically designed for non-Christians or not regular churchgoers. People who might have lots of questions about God, about faith, about the meaning of life. And I could explain it more, but I think this short video does a better job of that. So if you want to go ahead and run that short little video, this will kind of explain what Alpha is a little bit more like. busy. Every day we ask questions like, what's happening today? What should I wear? How am I going to fit everything in? But then there are bigger questions like, why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I heading? Is there more to life than this? These are some of life's big questions, but there's rarely enough time to think them through. That's why Alpha exists. Alpha is a place to explore life's big questions in a safe and open environment. It's a series of sessions where anyone can share their thoughts and opinions and ask questions without feeling judged. When you come to an Alpha, you'll notice that first, there's food. Whether it's a full meal or a light snack, this is the time to get to know each other in a casual setting. Next, you'll watch an Alpha Talk. The talks are created to engage and spark conversation. They explore big issues around faith from a Christian perspective. After the talk is a time for discussion. This is the most essential part of any Alpha. It allows everyone to share their own opinions on the ideas presented in the talks. It's a time for people with different thoughts, beliefs, and experiences to ask honest questions and have open conversation. Every week, there are guests coming for the first time to an Alpha in their community. Alpha is for everyone, regardless of background or beliefs. There's no pressure, no follow-up, and it's completely free to attend. Come and explore life's big questions. Find an Alpha near you today. So I was talking to a guy, um, oh, I can't see any of you right now. This is funny. This is weird. I was talking to a guy, um, uh, you, some of you may know, Mike Kramer. Mike Kramer is a, a, a guy in our church, and he is one of our Alpha volunteers, and he is so excited about this. He's, he was telling me the other day, he's talked to like six people at work about it, and he just keeps going up to people at work, and he keeps asking them this question. He says, hey, I have a question for you. If, if there really is a God, like God is real, and you could ask him one question. What would, what would you ask him? And he said, the conversation that has come from that has been so amazing. And he said, of those six people, he said, I'm pretty sure two of the people I, I've talked to are going to come to Alpha. One guy's like super excited about it. You know, in the lobby, you may have seen it coming in or on your way out. Make sure you check it out. There's a table um, with some information. There's invite cards. You can grab one or two if you have somebody in mind. Um, in particular, you think, uh, yeah, they're kind of like a magi in my life. And I think they would really benefit from this. And you want to invite them to it. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be promoting it and talking about it. And you can sign friends up and family members up on the Connect card or just email me. Um, but I would really encourage you to be praying about who in your life can you invite to this? Who, who can you kind of point them to Jesus through this? It's just one great way, one great way that we, we can use a tool. So, um, yeah. So, you know, 
like every week there are new faces in our church. Every weekend I get to meet new people. It's one of my favorite things about this job. Every week I find out that new people are going to small groups. And, that, and for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, I don't know about you, but, but it brings me so much life, so much life when new people come around, when I meet people for the first time. And so if you're here for maybe the first or second time or, or maybe you're a new Christian or maybe you would say, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I have questions. I got these questions. I just want you to hear this from me. We are so, so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. You are like the magi to the rest of us. You remind us that God is drawing people to look for him. You're a reminder to those in the room that have been Christians for a long, just like Christians for a long time, just like Matthew was trying to rem- to point out and remind the Jewish Christians that God did not just come, Jesus did not just come for the Jews. He came for everyone. He came for all of us. You help me not to forget how amazing God is. And that leads me to want to worship him more. That leads me to even want to worship God even more, just like the Magi did. In verse 10, you might remember, we read this, it says this. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. How did they respond? They worshiped him. They bowed down and gave him gifts. And there are different theories about these gifts. Like some people say there really wasn't much significance in the gift. Some people say this was like the traditional gift you would give kings, these things. But there's also a theory that, that maybe there was more specific reason. The gold symbolizes royalty. So obviously the Magi were, were acknowledging Jesus as the king, as the rightful king of the Jews. But frankincense in its incense form is a symbol of one's deity. It was often burned in different temples to different gods as a form of worship. It was a sign of, they were saying that maybe um, that Jesus was, they might have been acknowledging that Jesus was actually a God or God himself. And myrrh, in its embalming oil form, is a symbol of death, which is interesting. It's used to prepare a body for burial. Now, this is just speculation, but if the Magi had those reasons in mind for giving those three gifts to Jesus, then their theology and understanding of who Jesus was and what he would do, not only being the king of the Jews, but being the son of God, and that he would die for the sins of the world. If that was their understanding, if that was true, then they were prophetically before their time. But no matter what the significance was, we see that they bowed down and worshiped him. And I'm convinced the more and more that we see Jesus like the Magi saw him, the more and more our natural response will be to enter into deeper and deeper worship of him as well. And we don't know how the story ends. It says the Magi returned home. We don't know much about them after that. That's totally kind of left in the air, but there is a legend. There is a legend that a somewhat removed Christian group of people living in Central Asia hundreds of years later claimed to be the descendants of these Magi and somehow they were Christians. We don't know how they became Christians and they worshiped Jesus. And even if that's fiction, and that's not true, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine that after seeing the prophecy fulfilled, that they actually 
went looking, following the star, looking for the king of the Jews, that once they got to encounter him, I cannot imagine that their lives weren't radically changed forever. That something was different in them when they left. Why don't we stand up? Why don't we stand up?